Welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of drinking. I'm your host, Zach Jabal, and coming up on the show, I speak with David Patterson, who makes world-class wines in a place few people have even thought of as wine country, including me. In fact, it's time for a bit of a mea culpa. Until recently, I was, to be a bit charitable, dismissive of the British Columbia wine industry. Though I knew it was a beautiful part of the world, the wines I tried had struck me as quite far from the world-class standing that they aspired to. So when I prepared to visit the Similkameen and Okanagan Valleys earlier this year, my expectations were kind of on the low side. But I'm pleased to admit that I was dead wrong. I was struck by the skill and dedication on display, the energy and enthusiasm throughout the area, but most of all, I was struck by the quality of the wine. Both valleys are well-suited to growing grapes, as they have both long and hot days during the summer, but also cool down dramatically at night, creating a diurnal shift that acts to delay ripening and aids in acid retention. As David and I discuss, there are definitely some challenges facing the region, but the level of quality is leaps and bounds ahead of where it was even five or ten years ago, and it's truly exciting to think about where it might be in another decade or two. The whole of the Pacific Northwest is tremendously exciting when it comes to wine, but there's no longer any reason for that excitement to end at the Canadian border. So stay tuned to learn more. Joining me today on Disgorged is David Patterson, the winemaker for Tantalus in Kelowna, right in the heart of the Okanagan Valley in British Columbia. Uh, in his time at the helm, the wines have become some of the most highly acclaimed in the region and are some of my personal favorites. Uh, David, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. Good, good to talk to you, Zach. Absolutely. Uh, so let's start with a really, uh, really general question. Um, how did you get into wine? Uh, well, I grew up in a family of teetotalers that uh, now occasionally will have a glass of wine I've made but uh, wine was something that occasionally happened at Christmas and came out of a cardboard box uh, while I grew up um, and then uh, I one of my first jobs was washing dishes in a restaurant and uh, worked my way front of house and sort of around 19 20 years of age um, discovered um, Merlots from the Hawke's Bay region in New Zealand. I was living in Taupo at the time and then uh, had a little a little epiphany moment when I tried a reserve Pinot Noir from Martindra, um that really, you know, sort of made me realise that there's there's really something to this wine stuff and it's not it's not snobbery and, and it's not bullshit. It's basically, uh, you know, there's so much variation and so much subtlety with wine, and that, that sort of captivated me from a from a young age. So from from then on, I've been uh, firstly working in in top restaurants, trying to learn as much about wine as possible, and then went to the dark side in my uh, in my mid twenties and decided to come and uh, produce the stuff rather than sell it. Gotcha. And so you got your start uh, in the wine making side in New Zealand, right? That was where you were first working. Yeah, so I, I studied at Lincoln University in Christchurch, and then uh, and then worked a couple of harvests in New Zealand. One for for the Geeson uh, crew, which is one of New Zealand's larger wineries. Um, but I was at their smaller facility in Canterbury, uh, in Christchurch, or just outside Christchurch. And then I worked for Noidos, who is uh, has been for a long time and still is one of New Zealand's best. Uh, Riesling, Pinot, and Chardonnay producers. Well, that seems like a uh, very fitting introduction to those varietals because uh, those are that's the bulk of what you work with at Tantalus now, right? Yeah, exactly. That's basically what we focus on. Riesling being our dominant variety, and then uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay are close second and third. Um, and so, you know, I feel like uh, with New Zealand wines in particular, you there's there's a lot of um, overlap. I was sort of struck uh, when I was up visiting in. Uh, 
in the Okanagan uh, in May, how much overlap there is between uh, that industry and the industry in British Columbia. Is that just a coincidence or is there something to that? I think there's something to that. I mean, firstly, you've got a lot of Australian and New Zealand winemakers as well as French and South Africans and lots of Canadians here, but um, quite a few Kiwis and, and Aussies here. Um, and I think it's also uh, over the last 10 years, you've seen a lot of uh, young winemakers or aspiring winemakers uh, traveling. And, you know, when it's when it's harvest time down in New Zealand, it's it's not up here. It's It's the opposite. So... You've seen a lot of Canadians go down to New Zealand and Australia um, uh, and learn techniques off, off the Kiwi winemakers and then vice versa. We've seen a lot of uh, Kiwis and Aussies coming up here to, to do vintage and to, to learn what we're about. Um, so there, there's that. So there's obviously going to be some commonality in technique. Um, and then also, especially with the Okanagan Valley, uh, you have similar terroir as well. I mean, it's a schist-based soil down there. Um, a lot, a lot of it is uh, is more slate and schist, but uh, a granite base to the mountains there, as as it is up here. I mean, we're in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, granite based soils, um, some some clays and uh, and some limestone spotted about, but but in general, it's a it's a glacial till soil um, from granite base. So I think that the vineyards yield quite similar fruit. Um, Obviously, down there, you're far away from the equator, um, almost as far as we are here. So there's also similarity in growing season, length of growing season and growing degree days. So it stands to reason that uh, that you're going to see um, a lot of commonality between the styles of wines that these vineyards yield and then the style of wines that, uh, that those winemakers make when they're seeing similar terroir as they move backwards and forwards between the southern and northern hemispheres. And that must be kind of a big advantage to uh, to a sort of up and coming winemaker or someone who's working in the industry is to get to work, you know, maybe two harvests per year as opposed to just one if you're sticking to uh, one hemisphere. Yeah, I mean, it's basically essential now in our industry, I would say. I mean, if you're a, if you're a young aspiring winemaker and you're not doing that, then you'll get you're falling behind. Mm-hmm. Um you pretty much will not get a job in uh, the Pacific Northwest anymore. I would, I would say, unless you've done some other international harvests and garnered some experience from uh, from other regions. I mean, ten years ago, you could you could get away with having just uh, just worked in Canada and that's it. But nowadays, no one's really getting hired unless they've gone out and done some interesting international harvests. Um, and that usually means down to the southern hemisphere and then back up to Canada for the northern hemisphere harvests. But you're also seeing these young winemakers stay away from Canada for, for three or four years and go and do an Oregon harvest and go and do a Burgundy harvest and try and uh, get techniques from all over the world um, and, and improve their skill that way. And because of that, you're seeing a rise in quality every year here because the people are bringing back this international experience um, into the region uh, rather than just getting cellar palette and seeing exactly what uh, what's happening in Canada and that's it. Do you sense more of that expertise being? Is it more applicable uh, in the in the vineyard in the in the way that the grapes are grown, or is it more in the cellar in the in the winemaking process? I mean, obviously all of those things are affected, but but is it more? It, I guess where do you have you seen the most sort of growth in, in technique and um, and skill? I would have said the last uh, the last ten years definitely in cellar skill, mm-hmm. um, but now 
people are, are realizing, um, and you know, some some producers have realized this for a while, but people are really realizing that winemaking doesn't matter as much as a lot of people think. I mean, a lot of credence is given to the winemaker, and they're often the face of the company. Um, when, especially when you look at uh, North American um, wineries and, and, and the, the structure that, that North American wineries take. But more and more winemakers are realizing that what they do doesn't matter as much as what happens in the vineyard and the quality of fruit that you get. So if you have amazing quality fruit, it's very, very easy to make wine. You crush the grapes, you let the wild yeast take over and you just sort of nurture it into what it's going to be. If you've got terrible grapes and lots of disease or too much nitrogen, not enough nitrogen, all of those sorts of things, um, you know, play a factor in the quality of grapes. And as soon as you, that, that quality of grape goes down, then you're starting to have to wrestle it into wine as opposed to letting it become wine itself. So more and more people seem to be realizing that if they get it right in the vineyard, then the winemaking part's easy. Yeah, um, and that's that's always been our focus is making sure that the vineyards are uh, in great condition and that they yield uh, beautiful fruit. Yeah, I was going to say one of the striking things in visiting uh, in visiting your winery earlier this year was um, sort of how. Um, and, and not just you guys, uh, other people in uh, the Okanagan as well, but really how much conversation there was about the condition of the of the vineyards and, and in making sure, you know, obviously there's a lot of emphasis on organic and biodynamic production in uh, British Columbia. And even for the people who maybe aren't going quite that uh, far, that really there, I was really struck by the the care and the consideration. Um, it's a, it's a, it was a degree of, of uh, emphasis that even in um, other parts of the Northwest, you don't always see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, the thing is, is there's 300 wineries up here, and I would say that the, the top 40 or top 50 definitely have that attitude. Um, and, you know, there, there's still a lot of people that, that don't think that way and are farming far more conventional and pumping yields and trying trying to make as much volume as possible. And, and there's definitely validity to that. If you're, the, if you're that kind of company and you're making more uh, more sort of bulk style wines and, and, and larger skews, then then all of that kind of thing matters. But, you know, the better producers that are producing wines of, you know, vineyard typicity and, and varietal typicity, and more importantly, wines that will age well, that, that have, uh, have longevity to them, realize that all of that has to come from the vineyard. You can't doctor that up. Yeah, so I'm I'm actually curious, um, you know, sort of speaking about that um, sense of vineyard uh, typicity and and sort of the sense of of the wines. You, know, you talked a little bit about the the sort of general soil composition of uh, British Columbia and a little bit the growing conditions. But what are some of the kind of defining characteristics you see um, of of the wines uh, that you're making and and wines from your kind of contemporaries and and how do you how do you kind of place wines from uh, from the Okanagan and in uh, sort of the general or the broader world of uh, wine. So I think one of the defining things about British Columbia wine is the natural acidity that we that we get. Um, because we're this far north, we don't often see the heat accumulation that uh, that you see in other regions, and we have these pretty austere granite-based soils, and that means that the uh, that the grapes retain more natural acidity than you see in a lot of other regions. And so you get this wonderful freshness to the wines, wonderful uh, 
minerality to the wines, which is not a word I love using, but it's hard to describe it any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sense of soil and a sense of place to the wines that uh, that reminds me of you know of Burgundy and of of some of these top regions that have been doing it for centuries. And we, you know, we're in the, I think, lucky position of, of working in a terroir that, uh, that has amazing potential and is only just starting to be realized. And still, and being in a, a young burgeoning region that, uh, you know, really high quality wines have only been around for, for 10 or less years, really. Um, and a lot of the wines that are 10 years old, 12 years old now that, that have lived and, and, and are still still aging very well, those vineyards that yielded those wines are now yielding even better wines. So the wines that we've made over the last couple of vintages and the wines that we're making this vintage will, uh, I truly believe, be, be better than what came before and everything's improving. So it's uh, it's really exciting to be part of a young sort of still fairly unknown region internationally although we're getting a lot more attention um i think in the world of wine we have the potential to to be one of the the great regions uh moving forward but that'll probably take my entire career and when my great grandkids are still working the piece of land maybe then uh I think by then that we'll have some real, uh, real international recognition for wines that have amazing ageability because of this natural acidity that that we get out of the. Uh, so, we, so we get awesome ripeness, we get amazing fruit ripeness, but we retain all this acidity, which, uh, which means that the wines age spectacularly well. Absolutely, I mean that was the single most striking quality of the wines I tried um, in BC was just that sort of vital vibrant acidity is that something that you feel like in the past winemakers in bc maybe fought against that 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 maybe the that uh dominant trend at the time was against sort of high acid wines or that something those wines were seen as being out of balance and now it's it that's for, come much more for sure for sure i i would say that a lot of the wines that i that i have tried that have fallen over have been they feel like they've been doctored or deacidified or sweetened or something to try and cover that natural acidity, something that, um, you know, there's definitely a swing away from that and a swing towards embracing uh, what we do have and embracing our terroir rather than trying to search for something that we're not. There was a lot of, uh, and there still is a lot of um, people trying to make wines like California or wines like Oregon or wines like Burgundy or, you know, rather than embracing, hey, we're actually wines of British Columbia. But the last five years especially, the the winemakers that have come from other regions, I, I find more, and have already been used to being proud of their, their region that they're working in, um, are all sort of saying, hey, we're making pretty damn good wines here. Let's, let's be the Okanagan. Let's not try and be something else. So embracing what we do have rather than trying to doctor what we don't have is, is key to that. Um, and, and key to, to us moving forward as a region uh, and getting some international recognition. Absolutely. It's interesting. So, you know, we talk about um, sort of the high levels of acidity and, and you talked a little bit about making, um, you know, growing uh, Riesling and, and Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And, you know, all three of those varietals kind of um, in that sort of high acid profile scream out uh, sparkling wine. And I know you make some sparkling mm-hmm. wine. Um, what What is that process like and, and how is it, 
um, to make both, uh, you know, a fair amount of still wine and also make some sparkling wine? Is it a, a, cha- a particular challenge as a winemaker? I, I really enjoy it because it spreads my harvest. You know, I start picking bubble, get that in, get that fermenting, and then the first still wine start coming off. So it means that our vintage is stretched a little bit. It's not uh, quite as short, sharp, and intense as some other places because we, you know, this year we picked bubble in August, and I finished picking riesling only a few days ago. So I think 14th of October we we finished picking riesling. Mm-hmm. So it it does stretch the the harvest quite a lot, um, and we've still got reds for for clients hanging out there um, down south. So we've still got Syrah and Cabernet on the vine. So by the time I finish picking, you know, it's well over a two-month harvest. It's more like a 10, 10 even 12-week harvest as opposed to a three- to five-week harvest like a lot of regions. And does that make it easier in the winery itself because you are you're not so, you can kind of do more wine over that time span? You're not so uh, pressed for tank space and all that during the, the really short harvest? It, it does for me. I mean, I, I don't flip a lot of tanks. I basically fill the winery once and, and then everything can stay on skins or, or be pressed off. We, we really have the choice of of exactly when we do that. We're not, we're not, and this is on purpose. I mean, I could easily fill up again and do a bunch more custom crush or make a bunch more wine off grower fruit, but we've always been a, you know, a focused single vineyard, uh, single estate winery and so we we built the winery to accommodate the the piece of land rather than you know having a piece of land build a big winery and then ram it full of grapes we mm-hmm. we're far more uh, about you know really really trying to focus in on each block and pick it when it when it's right and then give it the the right treatment and not feel like we're forced to to ram something through because we've got you know, an avalanche of grapes coming coming down the line. So that is a luxury that I have, and it's a I totally understand that it's a luxury that a lot of wineries do not have. Um, but I think that that lends itself to to higher quality because we can really focus on on each individual wine, and we're not pressured to 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 keep moving. Cool. Um, I'm also wondering, you know, um, one of the things that I've found a lot here, you know, in Washington with the talking to winemakers and people is that, you know, a lot of what was planted initially, um, whether it's uh, specific varietals in places or uh, even more uh, specific clonal selections is maybe people are rethinking kind of what to plant where. And is that is that something that's going on in the Okanagan? Is there enough of a baseline now to say, like, you know, we want to grow Riesling, but maybe the clones that we have in certain places are not ideal or, or are we, or do you feel pretty good about, I mean, maybe specifically um, what's planted at Tantalus and, and then maybe broadly, is that the sense of, of things in the Valley? Um, definitely there's more focus. I mean, a lot of the best vineyards, I think were only planted in the last uh, 10 years. Um, I, uh, you know, although ours are a lot older than that, I'm pretty, pretty happy with what's in our vineyard. Um, I would say that, we, I mean, we planted a small plot of Syrah, which has never ripened for still wine. We had great dreams of Cote Roti style uh, Syrah and, uh, you know, that floral peppery style, but um, it's never really got quite ripe enough, but we are this far north and we can make ice wine. So it becomes one of our most lucrative acreages every year because I can make a red ice wine, which sells at a premium. So yeah. it's a luxury we have. If, if we didn't have that luxury, that Syrah would have been long gone and replanted into either Riesling or Chardonnay. Um, but we keep it around because it's a point of difference and it's basically one of the only 
Syrah ice wines made every year in the world. So it becomes uh, quite a prized little wine, which uh, which makes me you know makes me think of our terroir. We're in Canada. We're in the we're we're in the far north. So we we have that ability to 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 flip over to ice wine if something's not quite going yeah. right in the in the vineyard. So. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm personally glad you have that. I'm personally glad you have that luxury because I have a bottle of that Syrah ice wine that is uh, in my cellar and uh, will one day uh, see the light of day, but not probably for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it ages very well, but but it is uh, it's delicious on release as well. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, I, I got to try it when I was up there visiting, and uh, it was it was yeah. uh, it was a compelling purchase. Let's just put it that way. Uh, <laughs> So, um, you know, you talked to, you mentioned a little bit ago about sort of the, some of the uh, growth of BC as uh, on the international scene. Um, what do you, what do you see as kind of the, the, the roadmap for that? You know, like the, obviously, uh, you know, people like me who go up there, I think who are in the wine trade, um, who have a chance to try the wines are, are, I would say almost exclusively, um, impressed with, um, you know, what's there, you know, I, I, we, we met up at Riesling Rendezvous here in Seattle uh, earlier this year. And I think the sure. back was, was very strong, but you know, the, it's still, I mean, it's still, I think uh, very, very few people outside of the wine world or, or even believe that you can make wine in British Columbia, let alone, you know, world-class wine. So, so how do you, how do you approach that as a, as a winemaker and also the general manager of a winery who's got to think, you know, even more so maybe about that kind of uh, longer term uh, marketing? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges that we're going to face in the next 10 years. I mean, part of it is you know, we've had the luxury as a, as a region to pretty much sell everything that we make locally. Um, and if not locally, then off to Alberta or Ontario. But most of BC wine is still consumed in BC. That's not a bad thing. But as we grow as a region, we, you know, when our population is not growing at the same rate as our industry. So there's only so much wine that people can drink. And um, so we are going to have to look at export and we are going to have to look at other markets and we're going to have to have an international identity. What that's going to look like and how we do that is one of the biggest challenges because we're such a north-south skinny little valley, we don't have an epicenter and therefore a definable um, grape variety that everyone should be focused on. So we're never going to be the Okanagan Valley that is known for Sauvignon Blanc or known for Riesling or known for whatever, because what I grow up here and what suits my terroir is very, very different to two hours south of me, where they're on more sandy soils and they have a far larger heat accumulation. It's more like the Columbia Valley. Or, you know, it's more, more a Washington terroir than it is the terroir that I'm at. Um, so as a region, when we go out to international shows and we're showing everything from you know, single varietal Syrah and Cabernet Sauvignon all the way up to very cool climate, high acid Riesling. It's very hard to then say to everyone, here is our, here is our identity. Because when you look at a lot of very successful New World regions, let's take Oregon, for example, they are a Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, and a little bit of Chardonnay region, a little bit of Riesling. But the Pinot Noir dominant, everyone has multiple Pinot Noirs and it's by far the most planted. Here, you find most wineries doing um, often over 10 varieties um, because we can grow most or all of those varieties fairly well. Um, and 
for me to say we should focus on Chardonnay, Riesling, and Pinot Noir because that's what I do um, <laughs> is not going to suit the guys an hour and a half down the road where they grow Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and Cabernet Sauvignon very well. Um, I'm not going to be able to do what they do. They can't do what I do. Um, so that's going to be our biggest challenge is how do we launch ourselves as a region into the international game without having that focus like a Burgundy or an Oregon or a, you know, the Loire, which all have the varieties that everyone does. There's always a smattering of other things and other interesting things that people are trying and doing. But generally, when you look at a, any successful region, they have a focus that they all do well. And that's never really, I don't think, going to be possible in the Okanagan because of this north-south um, valley and because of you know the, the altitude that I'm at compared to the altitude that they're, they're at down down below, there's almost uh, close to 150 metres difference in, in altitude as well. So it's very, very different terroir. Yeah. So I mean, that's going to be our biggest challenge, but that's going to be the fun of it too. When we, when we do go out as a region and, and start showing wines, and I'm out there showing Pinot and, and Riesling, and someone else is right beside me showing Great Syrah, hopefully that's going to be embraced by the international community and and what what i really hope in the next 10 15 years is people are going to get to the point where they're like whatever you get from the okanagan if it's been in, imported and it's been through a few good pellets it's going to be damn good yeah and so you can buy a Serrara and you can buy a riesling from this region and they're both going to be good because they're from slightly different terroir and they're made well well, and it's interesting because I feel like just uh, in a much broader sense in the wine industry, um, I think people have – I've gotten fewer and fewer people when it comes to, uh, say, regions that are less familiar who say, oh, what's the – what do they grow there? Like what's the varietal? Um, and I think a little bit less emphasis on the idea that a, a, a largish region should only produce, as you said, kind of one benchmark varietal. I mean, there's still a lot of that assumption out there in the world of wine, of course, but I think you're seeing more, sure. I'm seeing more and more people who, who are really kind of saying, you know, where are they making great wine? And if they're making great wine there, then I probably want to try it. And, and in a way it's almost, it's almost more advantageous because like, you know, if you look at the, the flip side to Oregon, there's a lot of people out there who could not care less about Pinot Noir. They're not, and they're not ever going to be interested in drinking it. And so if you say, Hey, I, I have you know, I make wine in Oregon. What do you make? Pinot Noir. Okay, great. I'm not interested in Pinot Noir. Where, you know, regions that are a little bit more diverse varietally, stylistically, have have a almost a, have a harder time of making kind of that initial impact, I think. But it's more broad-based when they do, I think, kind of enter a market, when they do get on the scene, because then it's like, hey, for the person who loves Riesling, we have Riesling. For the person who likes Bordeaux-styled wines, guess what? We have those too. Yes. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, that's going to be our challenges to get that across. And I think, you know, I mean, we, we seem to be the darlings of, of uh, international critics and sommeliers right now when, when they come to the region because they get it. But the general wine buying public that grabs a bottle off the shelf and drinks it straight away, it really doesn't have that, an idea of that or, or a sense of that. And they, you know, one of the reasons that let's take New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, for example, which is successful all over the world, is that there is a lot of it. So, And they have huge marketing budgets, and they can get into these regions and really show his, his 10 different wines, all made from the same variety, all fairly similar, but also slightly different. Um, but no matter what, when you buy a New Zealand Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, you know what you're going to get. 
And for for us, it's it's also going to be a volume thing because we are a small region. We're a very finite region. There's not a lot more plantable land because we're in a, you know, basically an alpine valley. Um, we don't have massive expanses of river delta or anything to to be able to plant to, and so you know we're we're never going to have the volume to make huge impacts in the international market. So the only place that we can really find a place is more at the high end with sommeliers with educated wine pellets that are looking for something slightly different and something new. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it does seem like, you know, that that's a, it's sort of a, it creates a, that the challenge of entering the market, especially at the really kind of, a, you know, affordable price point, but it does, I mean, for someone like me who cares more about, you know, sort of higher quality, higher end wine than, than I do about oceans of kind of eh, whatever wine, um, it does yeah. kind of it does kind of create this opportunity to really in a way that I think is actually in in some ways maybe um, similar to to New Zealand where again I think I mean yeah there's a lot of Sauvignon Blanc but the the overall quality I mean there's just it's not it's not Australia where there are oceans of you know yellowtail or whatever being churned yeah. out um, you know it is still a region um, I, from my understanding you know it better than I do that's that's still largely focused on quality. Um, and and obviously that's the case in in uh, BC as well. Um, what uh, what you know you mentioned um, you know we talked a little bit about obviously the wines that you make as far as uh, Chardonnay and, and Pinot Noir and Riesling and then um, you know what else would you say um, maybe um, in and around uh, Kelowna which is as you said kind of towards the northern end of the valley and then kind of working south. What, what are the other varietals that you see people working with that you're really excited by? Um, up around Kelowna, I think that ar- aromatic whites are king. Um, so, you know, any, anything in that Gewurz, Pinot Gris, Riesling realm are very, very interesting from this area. Um, yeah, and it's that acid profile then, that makes those like, I feel like cause those are, those are, like, those are varietals that when people hear like Gewurztraminer, they go like, uh, I mean, if they know, if they're familiar with it, it's, it's sort of that like flabby, syrupy kind of. For some people, it's appealing, but for a lot of people, it's kind of just like it's too much. And Turkish delighty. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I think the Gewurzes here it can be stunning because, again, we, we, we get to that rightness. We get that like Turkish delight aromatic that people love in Gewurz, but we have a gram and a half more acidity than most regions. Mm-hmm. So it still retains a freshness that you often don't see in those other Gewurzes, in those syrupy Gewurzes. We still. We still pick at similar ripeness, um, bricks-wise, and um, you know get similar aromatic profiles and, and similar palate weight. But there's this backbone of freshness through the wines that uh, that you often don't see in these other regions. So um, I think that's that's the key to what we're doing. Um, then uh, you know as you move further south, um, I. I'm really only interested in Pinot and Syrah from this region. Um, there is some very good Bordeaux blends made, but I mean, even the top Bordeaux, I'm not so stoked on. I, I would be drinking a Rhone before I drank a Bordeaux any day of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the uh, what I'm interested in is the single vineyard Syrahs that are starting to come out. I'm interested in the... Uh, you know, sometimes single single vineyard, sing, single clone uh, Cabernet Franc can be really interesting mm-hmm. from here. But overall, I'd say that you're going to see more and more very, very good Syrah come out of this valley. Excellent. 
All right. Well, David, I thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Uh, look forward to chatting with you more and, uh, and hopefully getting a chance to uh, get some of your wines down here in the States uh, before too long. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Thanks. Thanks, Zach. Thanks again to David Patterson for joining me. For more information about his wines, check out Tantalus Wine on both Twitter and Instagram, or go to tantalus.ca for more details. As for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Zjebal, that's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E. And if you're interested in wine classes and events, check out my website, vinetrainings.com, that's Vine with a V. Thanks again for listening to Disgorged, and cheers. Cheers.